This episode of Troxel is supported by Avail. Content is more than Revit families. If it's digital, Avail can handle it. Learn more at getavail.com. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have conversations with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the co-evolution of architecture and technology. In this episode, I welcome Altaf Ganahar. Altaf is the founder and CEO at Snaptrude, which is a collaborative automated 3D building design tool on the web. In this episode, we discussed a lot of things, including the lack of empathy within architectural firm leadership and the staff that are doing the work. As it relates to technology, but I'm sure you could apply it to many categories, the convergence of design tools, how entrenched the profession is in, quote, the way we've always done things, unquote, the importance of feedback loops in project design and software development, how important synchronous and or asynchronous collaboration is in modern design software, what some of the strategies are that can be employed in a firm to switch from one software to another. Because the reality is, this is one of the highest hurdles to overcome, no matter what size the firm. The idea of a building operating system for construction and more. This was a fantastic conversation with Altaf, and I hope you'll not only find value in it for yourself, but that you'll also help add value to the profession by sharing it with your network. Let's get some network effect going here, people. In addition to leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, It's the smallest act of generosity you can do to support the show and to help broaden the reach of conversations like these in my attempt to elevate the industry with your help. I would also appreciate you visiting the sponsors who help make this episode possible. Thank you so much. So without further ado, I bring you Altaf Ganahar. Altaf, welcome to the podcast. It's great to see you again. Thank you so much, Ivan. So, big fan of the show. I always, whenever I'm commuting, this is the first show that I uh, hop into. This is it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's great. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yes. And uh, it was great to see you in Chicago. That was fun. Absolutely. It's so good to see you in In person. person. Yes, after COVID and all those things which happened. Good to be back in the US, in New York. Yeah. Awesome. So, uh, if you could give a little bit of your backstory and tell us where you're coming from, and then we can get into the problems that you're interested in solving and why you're interested in solving those. So take it from there. Tell us tell us who you are, Altif. Yeah, awesome. So uh, I come from a very uh, computer graphics, geometry, math kind of a background since the early days was into these theoretical physics and math. And because of that, started applying these concepts to computer graphics, specifically geometry, point clouds, uh, published a bunch of papers because of that. And we were working on an ambitious project where I was leading the project to reconstruct the UNESCO World Heritage Site in 3D, uh, acquiring the point cloud data in as cost-effective manner as possible, making sure that it's as high resolution as you take it from a laser scanner and then categorize it automatically. So so basically, how do you replicate this throughout the country in all the uh, legacy, uh, these cultural sites? And this is where I first started interacting with architects because they were also involved in the project. And they were doing it all using SketchUp, AutoCAD, Revit. So they were trying to do it in a CAD-based thing. We were trying to do it um, from the uh, actual data itself by visiting the sites. And I realized that like this is really legacy technology. Their workflows are really broken. And I started interacting with them to understand how their day-to-day operations are when they are actually building or constructing uh, uh, real-world projects. And it made me realize that there are a lot of opportunities uh, over here to solve. And I was still in my undergrad. I was from a technical background. I said, let's look at one of those or two of those problems. Let's start building something. And I started building a plugin to SketchUp. And very simple plugin. Just you take a floor plan. From any website, like say you go to Zillow, you get a floor plan, you just import it into the plugin, it will automatically create a 3D model. It's not very detailed, not very accurate, but something which will give you a 3D visual uh, aspect of it. 
and that plugin got some traction and that's when i said like should i want to do a phd i had a few phd offers in the us and uk i said like should i want to do a phd or this looks exciting so let me continue and i said like, let me give it a shot for a year or two what happens and those two years i worked with many architectural firms construction firms and even companies which serve the construction industry like large accounts and built a lot more plugins like built area automation like how to calculate rentable square footage uh, all of those things in an automated fashion from revit uh, bill of quantities and i realized that these are small small things but like revit of course offers it but so many steps to even get to this conclusion so the feedback loop is really really long and two two and a half years down the line i saw that like web is a web is almost becoming the operating system or the modern operating system so like let's just start building a modern design tool 3d design tool or a bim tool on the web uh, and that's how it started back in late 2017 early 2018 and fortunately we got into techcrunch we got some um, into the limelight that's where we got uh, our first initial check from a vc and we were on to our journey nice it's really interesting to think about how you started when you said you were you're going out and trying to use basically capturing tools and automation to grab this UNESCO World Heritage sites and automatically classify maybe what things were on the site and then you're you see how architects work and it's like we we use the same old tools that we bought off the shelf and we draw every line one by one and those are completely different approaches to solving the same problem. I'm just wondering like back then when you, when you saw that as an opportunity to maybe break into this industry from a technology standpoint, when you were talking to those architects and showing them what you could do, what was that conversation like? Because I think like Architects don't know what they don't know. And especially when they're, they're, they get really proficient with tools, they become their go-to tool. And it's really hard then to break, it, break into that workflow from your standpoint with a new tool that has a completely different approach. So I'm just wondering kind of how did those conversations go and what got you excited to continue this development? Because I think it's still a real battle to get people to switch tools. I'm using air quotes, right? Because um, those those uh you know those habits that they have the muscle memory that they have with the keyboard shortcuts and all that changes it really disrupts their workflow so that that's one of the reasons why it's hard to break in but what were those conversations like yeah you're absolutely right Evan. so behavior change is one of the hardest things to pull off especially in an industry like architecture and construction uh so initial conversations were again on what we were doing as a research project was very different which was acquiring this point cloud data processing it and creating it so it was more of an augmented effort cad is doing the approximate uh, cad model whereas we are actually bringing the live data but when i started showing what i could do um, by building those plugins and things this is like this is a lot of automation that can save us productive time so everybody today complains about architecture being an overworked profession uh, even though like the business model and all of those there are a lot of conversations just on your podcast itself about discussion of the future of architecture keeping that aside everybody agrees that it's an overworked profession productivity improvements not just help us help them run a better business but also make the lives of these individual junior architects associates much better and that's where they saw opportunity that we don't want to replace but like anything which can actually enable them to cut some time over like the the concept of marginal gains they were really excited about that and that's where these plugin concept is where I was able to enter, started automating things which don't really add to the major dislike. They're basically unproductive. But like if you have to create a schedule of areas for a multifamily apartment with like 30 floors, I don't think you should be doing a P line and then like putting it in an Excel sheet or counting parking spaces for that matter. Uh, these things should be avoided. Uh, and that's where I started uh, automating these things. And they love these aspects. Then said, like, why can't a tool be built which puts this at the center where you would never have to do anything which is unproductive? That's that's where we started doing this. It's interesting because those are kind of require things that are required in the deliverable. It makes so much sense when you see it automated to that that of course, like nobody wants to spend their time doing that. 
And yet, there are so many architects who just say, no, this is how we do it. This is how we've always done it. And we're just, and we're actually okay with that. And that to me is, that's kind of the mind blowing thing. It's like, you see how it could go. And yet you still decide not to go that direction. And, and, and why is that? Like, I don't, I'm just interested. You, you've worked with a bunch of different clients, a bunch of different firms. And, and when you, I'm just wondering if you have any particular insight into why somebody would still choose to do it by hand, let's just say, versus picking up a new tool that does it for you automatically. Um, I think it's a largely habit associated, but like, I'll just tell you a conversation which I was having very early in my uh, client interactions or early users. So I asked him, why do you sketch on a piece of paper when you could actually use something like a, a good iPad app, the bunch of them now, uh, which do a lot more automation as well. Uh, he says like, it's not about drawing that particular thought, which I have the drawing and the paper's interaction with the pencil gives him time to think apparently to come up with new ideas, etc. which I tend to appreciate like on, on a basis, but like there is that design time and there is a time to produce models and drawings and like uh, a bunch of other deliverables. I think need to understand where technology can come in and automate those things. I think architects, as much as I have interacted, they appreciate things which don't take away their design. But anything which uh, is unproductive where they hate doing it, especially like parking spaces and, and like calculating the area schedules or uh, doing these, some of the time like hatching drawings when you have to do them uh, deliverables. This is something which they all agreed that they wanted automated. Sure. I think that totally makes sense. There's definitely like, like it, I don't, I don't mean to say that, that that mentality applies to all of the different kinds of things that you could do. I totally agree with the benefits of pen. Like I'm holding up a fountain pen right here and I write notes in a paper notebook because if I write it, I remember it versus if I type it, I, it's different. I don't know why, but it is, it's different. And, and so it's kind of the same with the, the drawing aspect, but when it comes to schedules, like <laughs> why would anybody ever want to continue to do those in an Excel spreadsheet and P lines and, you know, doing typing in area into AutoCAD or whatever, or doing filled regions or, 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 you know, that would be terrible. But if you're, if you're, not using area plans and automatically tabulating this stuff. It just seems like I, I just don't understand that mentality, but we still see it all the time. And it's still hard to convince people to use new tools, even if they are like insanely better with you being able to use that time for something more valuable than. And I think a lot of it is the person who's making that decision is not the person who's actually doing it, right? A lot of times they're a leader or they're an owner, they're business development in a firm, and the person who's doing it is getting paid a lot less and they don't really care because they're disconnected from the work. And so they don't feel the pain anymore because they're not the ones doing it. And therefore it's like, no, just do it the way we've always done it. And and I, I, I just I just was looking to see if there was any particular insight that you had in that because I think uh, it's still a rampant problem within AEC industry and just architecture profession. In, in just to add on to that, uh, just to add on to that thing, right? There is a huge lack of empathy between the senior management as well as a person who's actually executing stuff. Uh, so if your job is just uh, creating toilet drawing, because every intern today starts there uh, in most of the firms. Uh, or generating schedules. If your job is just that, uh, the senior architect, for him, it's uh, it doesn't even care about generating schedules. Basically, schedules just appear to him when he needs to do a presentation. So it doesn't know the pain that a junior person is going through. And lastly, I uh, based on my insights, I feel like architecture is more like, because it's a professional service, it's treated like an apprenticeship. Uh, so the junior is an apprentice of the principal architect which eventually once he is mature enough, he'll go and start his own firm. That's a thought process which exists. So they make sure that everybody should go through that pain, which they did 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I think that mentality would have to change now. Like every industry has moved to so many modern technologies because productivity gains lead to more work being done, to faster designs being developed, to more affordable housing, which we eventually want to solve uh, given the housing crisis which is going on. So I think this... Will take time, but I think 
seeing some inflection points already when i'm talking to uh, some modern leadership in architectural firms which is a good sign yeah i was going to ask you if who your target audience is maybe it's both or maybe it's a, a huge gradient but it seems like you have to ha- be having the conversation with the senior leadership for and 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 talk about particular aspects of what you're working on and how it solves the problems and makes it better. But then you also need to talk to the people who are kind of at the grassroots emerging professional levels, who are the ones who actually use the tools with a different communication style, a different narrative for them, because I would imagine they're typically the ones looking for these kinds of tools, right? Where the senior leadership isn't necessarily looking for these tools. A lot of times the technology department in a firm is separate from the leadership of the firm anyway, right? So it's really complicated inside of these large firms. And so maybe maybe just talk for a minute about how your narrative changes depending on who you're talking to in those regards, because it, it seems like your audience is, is all of the above. So you have to make sure that the product is loved by these junior people, or especially people who are going to spend hours and hours of their time every day. So that's what modern user experience, interactive web experiences, all that has been learned in the industry over the last two decades Unfortunately, that has not been applied to AEC, has to be brought into significance. Collaboration, data, automation, with a modern, beautiful user experience are table stakes. Um, in any other industry, but just in our industry has not been the case. And that's what we want to bring in. So our focus has been very in a, in, in a very focused point to make the junior architect or anybody who's an architect who's using a design tool to love their user experience and love their job because of that. Then they convincing their management is much easier is what we feel. So we have seen this historically with SketchUp being loved back in the day when it when it really became a viral thing. It was bottoms of adoption. Like these junior architects started loving it. Then they started demanding that like this is something which you're comfortable in. You figure out uh, how you will purchase it. So we want to get to a stage where a junior architect would say if the firm is not buying it, I'm going to pay for it and I'm going to take it because it, it is worth my time. So we want to make sure that the user experience is that good. So you're encouraging rogue, going rogue activity in, inside the, the firm. <laughs> so sometimes I could see that works, but a lot of times it's like, you did what? You signed up for what account? And then now they have to, you know, the IT department or the, the digital practice department has to put out those kind of, those fires. It's, it's, it's the wild west out there. You're encouraging it, Alta. So, so let's talk about user experience because I think that that is a huge driving force. People expect more from software nowadays than they ever used to. I think when you talk about the the junior architects who are the ones who have come up and grown up as digitally native, have higher expectations for those table stakes that you mentioned. Uh, so what are you guys doing specifically at SnapTrude to address that aspect of it? That's that To me, that's kind of like the doorknob to a house, right? It's the very first interaction. It's the very first touch point. The front door needs to be a welcoming. As an architect, I, I believe that the front door needs to be welcoming. It needs to be, it needs to feel good, right? It's, it's kind of like, it's like an iPhone, right? It has to feel good in your hand before you even turn it on, right? And so I'm just wondering how you you guys met, you mentioned a few things. You mentioned you're you're doing what you're doing in a browser, right? Um, which makes me think like, okay, it doesn't matter what device necessarily that I'm doing it on. I know it's still kind of a CAD procedure, CAD like modeling procedure. So you do need fidelity of a mouse and cursor support, all of those kinds of things. But doing it in a browser making it look good, making it feel good. What are the kinds of things that you're actually thinking about there when it comes to the software that you're delivering? Yes, quite a lot of things, especially as you said, junior architects have grown up in a digital first environment. So they've been used to using things like TikTok, Instagram. They know what good user experience feels like. Uh, and when they what's funny about those apps is there's so many hidden features in there that are not obvious right and so that that to me is kind of a disconnect in that statement that you just made maybe we'll come back to that so go ahead yeah so on that aspect itself there is this concept known as first time user experience and a power user experience and you need to know both of those users very well when you're building these products so whenever we add a enterprise feature or like whatever is more hidden feature for our power users we keep the focus that the first time user experience can never be compromised. 
because whenever somebody new is signing up, like they have very low motivation because they're just like curious what it is and they don't have the time. So always assume that they're not going to go through a YouTube tutorial just to get started or read through a bunch of documents which are very neatly prepared. So it has to be so obvious. That's That's been the focus for us. And on the browser, making these things happen. So our focus has been like, what is the journey that the person is wanting to achieve? How do they do it today? And make sure that we are not moving them a lot away from their muscle memory, which has been acquired over their like profession or their uh, education that they have come up. So while you do that, make sure that you remove any impediments from those experience and then automate anything in and around that so that they're getting the wow factor or the aha moment is what we call during that journey. That has been our philosophy for user experience. It's interesting to think about. Like, I think about a couple things when when you were talking about that. I, I think about IKEA and I think about Apple. I think about IKEA in that the the first, you know, every the store is a showroom, right? Which is not atypical of traditional furniture showrooms. Except IKEA made it an experience. They made it this thing you walk through and experience different types of rooms where they're they're designed, they're curated with particular groups and settings of furniture and lighting and all of the different accoutrement that that accessorizes a space and all of these things. And then you you go through the experience of picking the, out the piece of furniture, taking it home, assembling it yourself. And all of this is part of the experience of owning a piece of IKEA furniture, which I think is unique, right? And, and other people have copied it for sure. But I think IKEA probably pretty much pioneered that. And then I think about Apple when I think about, you know, we talked a minute ago a little bit about the iPhone and I'm thinking about the the UI and the UX. When the iPhone came out, the UX was very, I guess both, were very much like uh, analogs to the real world. You know, the calendar had the tufted leather and the torn edges to the paper and the contacts had, you know, all of these these kind of more tactile looking, so they didn't feel tactile, right? You're touching a piece of glass, but it looked like it. So they were they were bridging the physical to the digital in that way to get people over the fact that they're interacting with the device in a new way. And they sweated every single pixel on the screen, and they probably still do. Pixel, like it's it the perfection uh, at which they draw everything is is in in order to really delight the user, right? When you're developing software, how are you thinking about the things on the screen that people interact with? Because there's software that we hate to use that we use all the time as architects, right? We don't like how it looks. We don't like how it feels. We don't like how confusing it is to where is that setting buried, right? I can't even remember in there. And then there's, let's just say, eight different ways to do something, right? And and what what's the right way in air quotes for your office to do that thing? All of these things play into the difficult problem of solving it with software. Like this is not an easy thing to do. You could do it a lot of ways. So what is your team? How, how do you address kind of those kinds of thoughts, those kinds of, how do you execute in your software those kinds of things that get people over the hurdle so that they can have that aha moment so that they can be wowed by your piece of software. Yes. So the multiple uh, variable, it's a multivariate equation when you are looking at solving this user experience problem. One is uh, you would have to have immaculate attention to what the user is trying to accomplish. And another aspect is how do you emotionally make him feel or him or her make him feel throughout the journey? So somebody, even when he's trying to, say, design a simple program or a massing study of a bunch of buildings together. So their natural experiences when they are doing it in person, in in a model, they assemble all of these pieces together. So we have like two aspects of design. I'll go a little bit more deeper into this, which is architects design through two approaches. Outward in, where they have a mass and then they start breaking it into pieces. Or inward out, where like, like Lego, they start assembling pieces. So we said, like, how do you make it both possible simultaneously? Doesn't matter what the user is trying to accomplish. It should be like Lego where you can assemble. I want to pause you right there because I think this is a, this is an important distinction that 
previously in the existing tools, it was always, no, not always. There, there were both examples. And, and it, it's usually how the process goes is you start from the outside in and then you start over at some point, usually like at the beginning of design development, right? And at, at DD, it's like, okay, now we're going to start the Lego analogy and we're going to start building it piece by piece because now we know what all that stuff is, or at least we know enough of what that stuff is. As an architect, we start with the 30,000 foot level, right? Which is the outside in. We do massing. We are looking at the site. We're laying things out. We're thinking about environmental constraints, site utilities. Where are they? All these big picture things. And then we, at some point we start over and we say, you know, this was, this was a great argument for like, why, why multiple pieces of software? And now you're, you're basically saying we want to do it all in one, but multiple pieces of software was okay because we're going to start over because we have enough information at that point to actually start talking about it as elements of construction. Before that, it was, it was more sculptural. It's more layout. It's more ideas. It's getting the rooms in the right place, and and so I, I just thought it would be. It's it's interesting that you said that, and I don't necessarily think that that process changes, but maybe you want to solve it all in one piece of software. Exactly. So our we we have an internal terminology. We have not yet released this entire aspect, but like when it comes out, you'll start noticing that this flip which you're talking about, which is like you start with outward and largely for like these. Uh, bigger projects, but like in some projects, I've seen that they start inward out since the beginning itself. Uh, they will all converge, and at any stage of the process, you should be able to do both. So, if I'm at a very detailed design development stage, and some requirement has to change even minutely for the overall building performance to improve because some new data emerged out, you should be able to do outward in design again at that point of time. And that's what we have not yet launched this. But we are working very hard. Very soon, uh, in the next few months, this will be there. And when this merger happens, uh, you'll see. We call it as mass BIM integration. When mass and BIM marry each other. It's interesting to think about that. I, I'm, I'm really interested to see how you're gonna, what it looks like that the solution to that problem. Because yeah, there new information is encountered all the time during design, right? And design happens the whole, all of the phases of the project. So as we encounter new information and we have to tweak something, it needs to ripple through to be effective, right? And I think that's the hardest part about when you're actually working on the deliverables of a paper-based deliverable project is, and, and we've seen how this has evolved over the years, right? This was what Revit was supposedly the answer to, and, and to, to a large degree it is which is, you know, I, I move a window, it moves everywhere. It moves in all the drawings. But before that, we had to chase that through every single drawing, right? And, and, and what you're saying now is like, okay, well, if I, I want to make a bigger move than that, and it should just, all of those things should ripple throughout and not, we shouldn't have to worry about coordinating all of those things anymore. Exactly. So imagine like you take a vertex, you pull it out in a BIM model. Uh, just thinking of it as like a, like a normal mask. And everything gets adjusted, your doors, windows, attached services. That's that's the goal which we are moving towards very aggressively. Yeah, because where, where Revit breaks, right, just to use Revit as the de facto whipping boy here, is is you can't treat it like a mass at some point anymore, right? There's no more constraints that are built into the system that enable the user to do something like that. So yeah, if you pull one vertex, you move one wall, Unless you've been really diligent about locking all of those constraints as you built it, you're, you're going to break half of it no matter what you do. But if you can't, not everything doesn't update. You have to kind of still go through and update every single element that touches every single element so that it still does, does that. So that's really interesting. To I w- I'm excited to see what you've come up with there. Yes. One of, one of the things that you talked about earlier was was that aha moment, that wow moment. And something that has come up in a previous conversation was you felt like it had to be a hundred times better for somebody to switch a product. Tell me, tell me what you mean by that. So if you're just seeing something in an entrenched industry where today Revit, SketchUp, whatever software they used, it's so entrenched in the organization until unless you see significant value add, you'll say, good job, nice. I might consider using it, but like it will never happen. Until unless you meaningfully make a 10 to 100x 
improvement in their workflows, not just in terms of objective parameters like this is 10 times faster, 100 times faster, all of those things. It should also make them feel uh, that way. Every time, say, you, uh, as I was talking about that inward outward design experience, it could be like how you snap those two masses together or how do you cut those masses together? Um, how is the data represented? All of these things become the core uh, part of that experience. So this is where we are putting our efforts to make sure that whatever we deliver is 100x better, uh, but without disturbing their transition from existing tools. It shouldn't be like they would have to leave everything and start from scratch again um, and, and learn everything from, from scratch. So this is the balance which we are trying to maintain and trying to be very immaculate about uh, how each one of these interactions, when the person is even literally putting their cursor on the screen to doing a left uh, mouse down to a right click, what is happening? We, we make sure that we are able to understand how the user uh, is feeling. And the best way that we are able to do it is because we are trying to walk that mile in their shoes. We have a lot of architects inside the team. I have spent the last six years working with architects. Uh, so I've seen them, observed them, but like the team has not many architects today. So we literally do projects. So we just start, we have started working with architects saying that this is a project which is a concept stage. Why don't we also do it along with you? And we will do it on Snapdoon. That is what we started doing initially. So your strategy is so that they're not wasting, quote unquote, wasting their time. I'm using a lot of air quotes in this, but we can see each other. So it, it, it helps. But this this idea of co-developing the project with the architect so that they're not wasting their time doing it in a new piece of software, which no matter what, will always take longer because it, there's a learning curve. There's a barrier to entry to using any new piece of software. So you're saying that your strategy here is to walk along side by side with them and develop it in Snaptrude. I assume that things, you guys obviously are experts in Snaptrude, so things go very quickly. But then... Is it is it through that process that really opens their eyes? Like, are you in their office working with them? Are you just live streaming this as you do it? Or how how do how do they see through the window of what you're doing to really start to open their eyes and have those aha moments? What's that look like? We have done both. We have been in their office. Our architects have been stationed there, literally walking through their design iterations, but doing it on Snapdoon. Initially, we were not matured as a software. You know, it takes a long time. But what we do is like you can know where the shoe pinches. Uh, and that feedback is so valuable when it goes back to the engineering team, they can fix those things. But only in the last like about a year, we have realized that we have now been able to objectively demonstrate in certain aspects how better we are than their existing workflows. And that's the uh, inflection point that, that has started happening. And these firms have now started training their architects to use Snaproot to make them make it as a primary early stage concept or schematic design tool uh, as well. And if you want to transition them out of the workflow, interoperability is extremely important. So we don't go saying that like, just throw Revit away, throw AutoCAD away, throw SketchUp away. There's, there's one solution to everything. It's like, let's start working with it. So you have a Revit file. We have an importer to Revit. So import that file. Users to do small changes. Users to collaborate, which everybody today is bad at in the industry. While you're collaborating, you discover like, it's like Google Sheets. Like you take an Excel file, put it into Google Sheets, and you can only use it to collaborate. But over a period of time, you'll see, oh, formulas are the same. Filters are the same. Let me just like do a new project here. And that's a flipping point, which I think we have done quite a lot in the last six, seven months. And I think as the product is maturing out, we'll see it happen a lot more. Let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors. In this podcast, I talk a lot about all the realities with my guests, you know, mixed reality, augmented reality, virtual reality, all the realities. And I've got a new message for you from my friends at Avail. Let's talk about the new reality, which is that content, as I've talked about in the previous message from them, both wants and needs to live everywhere. Long gone are the days of saving files to your local hard drive or to a single on-premises server. In order to solve remote collaboration, information has moved to the edge. The cloud is king, and the number of cloud services out there dictate that the number of storage locations will continue to grow dramatically. Where do you store your files? 
BIM 360, OneDrive, SharePoint, Box, Dropbox, AWS, Azure. Chances are you probably saved them in some weird combination of those that I just mentioned and more. Well, here's the point of this message. Avail hides the complexity of where content and information resides. What file to use used to be your biggest concern. Now it's where do all those files live. Avail takes where out of the equation, which means that with Avail, you can actually find your mission-critical and not-so-critical files too, right when you need them. Avail helps get you the information you need faster. Go to getavail.com today to learn more. And now let's get back to our conversation. Can you talk more about the the feedback loop idea and how that's informed your development process? So when we start doing those projects, initially uh, the product used to fail because like you, you can never reach that bar. Uh, but we used to still push uh, the architects whom we were working with. Initially, they were not inside the company. They were literally freelancers or uh, associate architects who were doing their project. And we said, like, why don't you just like start using Snaproot, uh, record your screens, and just put all your frustration out where you feel that this is not working out. And we used to diligently go through every minute of that video understand where their frustration is. Like some frustrations are, like there's a lot of cognitive bias when you're talking to users. So uh, one very clear thing, recency bias. Whenever somebody you're talking to is frustrated, he'll only remember the recent things. He wouldn't remember the entire like eight hour journey. So uh, how would you, like a lot of customer discovery or like user discovery happens when you're reading between the lines, understanding their emotions, how their cursor is moving, uh, like sometimes we used to even ask like Loom is a great example where it records a person's screen as well uh, of what they're feeling like. So all of these put together, we were able to uh, uh, incorporate these feedbacks into making the product better. But like the user will only tell you where he's getting annoyed or what he wants to accomplish. But the solution, they're not great at solution. They're not, they're not the tech people, right? That is something which you should come up with. You are the user experience designer. You are the product designer. So that's where we said, like, this is a problem. How do we solve it? So the very famous saying, which I think Ford said back in the day, like, if I had asked my users around, they would have said, like, give me faster horses, not an automobile. So that is the innovation part, which we do. We understand what needs to be done, like understanding where the gaps are. That's all the customer and the user uh, discovery. So what are some examples in SnapTrude uh, that are those? things that make it a hundred times better. Just a few examples. Yes. So um, first thing is being on the web removes the barrier to entry for anybody to start using it. So today, um, just to give you an example, uh, architect, if he has to take design feedback from his customers, he's our customer, uh, like they have to send like screenshots of SketchUp or Revit files or put it in a PDF and put it in something like a blue beam or, and then take feedback. Well, if you snap it, you just share a link uh, or just like Google Docs, just like put their email ID in and it just comes in. There's a very clean user interface, which are built only for viewers. So it's customer friendly. So they can just like walk through the design and start giving their feedback in the form of comments, both synchronously as asynchronously, because we see collaboration of both kinds is important. Real time is useful for internal team members in a conference room setup, like simulate conference room. But most of the time, they want to work independently uh, and even customers for that matter at their own time given. So this is where like you can already see a huge improvement in their workflows. Design iterations happen faster because the lack of communication is avoided because you're not just looking at one piece by piece picture. You're actually looking at the entire storyboard which that architect has thought through and communicating it to the customer. The next thing is this mass and BIM integration which I was talking about. So we already have that system where the fluidic design experience, which architects love a lot, that's why SketchUp is still popular in spite of all the other problems which it has. It's popular because of that drawing and the push-pull and that entire experience. Imagine doing that. Yeah, imagine doing that, but like getting a BIM model out of it. That is something which we have enabled because like you're running two parallel processes in an architecture firm. You do SketchUp or Rhino or whatever design tool of your choice is, and after you say that it's matured enough, let's graduate it out from uh, your K-12 education into university. Let's go to Revit. Because whatever it is about Revit, I think Revit is a very good documentation. But 
it should not be mistaken for a design tool. That's where the problem comes in. Uh, and, and this is the piece of gap which we are trying to fill. What if the design and the detailed BIM software all coalesce into one thing? And that automation, when people see it, it's in a click of a button, you just say that these are my families, generate a building. We literally call it as create building operation. So you take a mass, you say, create a building, abracadabra, and it would just create a building out of it. This is the 10x better experience. And when you're doing this design iteration, we have, we keep another important factor as we have taken feedback loop from our architects. Design is also highly iterative in nature. It's a non-linear process. But like today, most of the tools fit it into a linear bucket. You graduate out of SketchUp, you go into the next software. You graduate out of this, you put it in an Excel sheet. But like that Excel sheet will give you information to make actual changes to your design model. The BIM model will throw up new information through which you need to make changes. Can you bring this feedback loop while enabling collaboration into the design system. So as I'm making a, like I pull a vertex out, I would want to know what my rentable square footage is changing now. Not having to wait a week to get it into a schedule, only to realize that like 10 other design changes have happened. So this is outdated and I don't know whether we are, I'm even compliant to say the FAR value or not. What is the impact on my overall budgeting? I again don't have to wait like weeks together and, and throw in a, like a thumb rule like, oh, this is my square footage. This is the approximate cost and which always, you know, like at the end of the day, construction costs are very different from what early stage uh, uh, costs are being proposed because early stage design can control a lot of these things if right insights are available. And that's what we want to enable. Uh, So you're not just trying to say compete with the legacy tools out there. You're genuinely wanting to help design teams design better buildings, better in terms of budget, efficiency, sustainability in a faster environment. That's our goal. And I think we have made some progress on it, but still a long road to go. I do want to talk about the maturity of a product because I think that's important, right? That's one of the reasons there are power users for established products that have been out there. And these people are experts in their field and experts in the community and help a lot of people. And it takes a long time for a, a product to evolve to that state where it has those kinds of really deep extensive feature sets. And like you said, it takes time for you to get there. And I mean, how many, uh, so going through architecture school, right? It was, it was similar, but different. It was, you're in your early years of design school and you design a building. Here's some more air quotes, right? And it's, it's not a building at all. And, and then you would have architects come in and sit on the jury and they would ask about exiting and they would ask about, you know, panic hardware. And it's like, I'm a first year design st- like I'm not there yet but but yet there was always those people who were the devil's advocate and they would want to talk about or just bring up you know really practical things you know, to be honest and and so kind of balancing the big ideas with the practicality becomes something you get much better at as a architect as you go through school and then when you graduate you, you you're forced <laughs> practicality right because these things actually have to get built as a software developer who's starting off with a a young product and you're competing with very mature products, I'm sure you get a lot of feedback that's like, where's my, you know, view filters that do allow me to do this. Right. And so what are, what are those kind? how do you respond to those and how do you prioritize requests because of the incumbent software that is out there that has existed for decades and people just have these high expectations about what software should do no matter how old it is. Just to uh, uh, tell you, like building any software is hard and building a design software on the web in 3D is extremely, extremely hard. Uh, So when I was jumping into doing this, like we knew what we signed up for to some extent that it's going to be a long journey and it's going to be a lot of heads down work. Uh, so there's no room to do any other thing. That's why we're like more in a stealth environment for a long time, working with users, customers that were early adapters with us. And only in the recent paths, we have seen that like we've been able to transition people out. But our objective has never been to start off by saying that this is your one answer to all, like uh, one ring to rule them all. Like you have to start with a simple, small use case where you can add meaningful value to your users. And we iterated a lot about it. So our initial product, which did not work out very well, uh, was can you take those hand-drawn sketches, which architects love to draw, 
and they just convert it into a massing plot automatically. Just like they have, they take it from their phone camera and convert it. Uh, we underestimated uh, how complex those sketches can be. So it was not universal. The feature is still live, but like we had to go through these iterations, what this small use case and injection point would be. And in the last like a year, as I said, like year, year and a half, we figured out what is it. It's a combination of early design, fluidic modeling tool, which can generate BIM models very quickly in a collaborative data feedback environment, real world data that you can provide. And this story has been able to help us solve the smaller use cases. And even there, we are not trying to solve it for everyone. Let's pick use cases, commercial interiors. What can we do for commercial interior, office interior companies? Let's solve it end to end, at least for one of their workflows. Forget construction drawings, forget other things. And when you're able to do this, that's where we are able to mature the product. Because you need to choose or pick your battles, especially when you're going against tools that have matured out over decades now. If you say that you, you're going to battle them out in every uh, field, of course, you're going to lose. Like it might be a 10, 12 year journey. So always pick your battles. Try to make sure that they're, they're, uh, you, you actually overpower them in those battles. And then over a period of the product is matured enough that you can actually take the entire uh, empire. We, we talked a little bit about the true costs of switching, right? There's, there are definitely costs to switching products. And I wanted to add to that part of the conversation because one of the things you brought up was one of the table stakes items, what may, maybe one of your first principles is a collaborative environment. It could be synchronous. It could be asynchronous. It's up to the users to decide and you know, different teams are going to get different value out of each one of those things. But let's talk about consultants, right? So as the architects who lead the design, the software that they use, it becomes the standard for the project. And there is a lot of investment in, especially in the US, in a Revit environment, right? Not only for the architects, but for all of their consultant teams as well. Uh, and to think about the complexity that that adds to this problem, how are you dealing with that as well? Because as an architect who did commercial buildings, I I would never take on that mechanical plumbing and electrical part of that myself to do right, and so I would be relying on a team. So are you are you tackling that at all yet? You said you're you're trying to be focused. Are you still allowing them just to work in a linked? or a Revit model of their own that links into the SnapTrude model, because this is all part of a, like we, we've been talking about, a very complex layered system of teams, people, software, technology, and deliverables. You cannot actually fight the system and replace it because uh, a 10 people firm works in a very different way versus a thousand people firm, the large ones. Uh, uprooting for the 10 person firm is slightly easier compared to a thousand people. But like, that's the journey which we are in. So the best way that we have figured out is start working with the ecosystem rather than fight against it. Uh, that's when interoperability was a very core central issue when we started. So we import any of your files, be it a CAD file, DWG, bring in, you can start from there. You can bring in a PDF, you can bring in an FBX or uh, OBJ. More importantly, you can actually bring in a Revit file. Or you can export to, out to any of these tools. So as your design needs to get uh, uh, feedback from your external consultants, an MEP consultant or a sustainability consultant or any of those people, you can either invite them onto the project where small changes can happen, geometry representations can be done. But you, when you would have to do proper parametric MEP design, we always recommend we export whatever design you have done seamlessly into Revit without any data loss to what you've drawn or designed. So you can just like seamlessly continue working in the ecosystem without disturbing your current workflow. So the switching cost is something which will be there, but how can you minimize it? Like think of it as again a multivariate equation. Minimize as much effort that the customer has to put in in adapting a new technology. So that's where we are optimizing. So interoperability becomes a core, um, uh, like core part of the product. So they're like dedicated engineers who just work on interoperability inside the team. Have you guys put any ideas or metrics, I should say, it's probably a better word, to the benefits of collabor real-time collaboration? I, I know that people probably think that working in Revit is a collaborative 
it is at some level collaborative, but it's not the collaborative you're talking about. Maybe, maybe first, let's just talk about what collaboration means in Snaptrude and to your team, and then we'll we'll go further from there. So um, we have both real time collaboration where we have tested it up to sixty users and it works. Uh, but like the most obvious use case is like a small team, which is a team of four or five people in an organization working on a project. And real time collaboration is useful when they're mimicking a conference room setup today where a large, on a conference table, you lay out a plan and you start discussing things and making changes. But the entire concept of people simultaneously designing on the same model is not something which we have seen repeatedly. Uh, Maybe it might change over a period of time when people learn the advantages of doing it, where they break. But I think the most obvious thing is the linking system, which AutoCAD and Revit have done well. So you divide the entire, say, if you're doing... uh, a mix of a commercial and a residential building in a tower, you'd split up it, split it up across multiple people, but then there's a master file where everything is XRF or linked. I think that would be more of a collaboration experience, but like you would need to switch between both the systems. Like sometimes you need to just quickly come together, iterate over some design decisions that need to happen on a real time, and then you go back into an async environment at your own code base, especially when teams at this scale are distributed across multiple cities and um, time zones. So we are seeing that both of those important, but like real-time collaboration is still very early. People are seeing the value of it uh, and communication becomes easier because like you have a cursor on the screen. So literally a person can point out, I'm talking about this on a Zoom call, annotate, etc. works, but like in a 3D environment, annotate is very different. So even with the customer, the customer can say, I'm talking about this material or this door over here. I don't like this. Can you change the, the quality of this? So all of those things have become way better uh, from from what we are observing in real-time collaboration. Yeah, I I would imagine, you know, at some level working in the model, like doing work, not meeting in the model. I would maybe distinguish it those two different ways. The meeting in the model is great for a distributed team when you need to do it and be synchronous and be there and talking about the one door that we're all talking about. And, And that in a working environment is chaos. You you wouldn't want to use that and see everybody's cursor moving around. It would be probably really distracting and it would probably lead to chaos, right? So I like that you made the distinction there. I would also say think that uh, this kind of real-time collaboration or let's just call it collaboration, you know, in, in a model, maybe not real-time, leads to higher levels of accountability for team members, which cuts out the time response that the traditional methods have taken, right? So a lot of times an architect will lob a model out once a week to their consultants that has a bunch of updates and then, you know, deadlines, right? So they want that mod, they want all the changes back in, in two days because they're the ones who are, took too long to, to get the model out to the consultants, but doesn't change the consultant schedule, right? So we expect these things to come back, but then we get ghosted. We don't hear from the consultants for two weeks, what's going on. And so I think a lot of times this real-time environment where you do have these linked models that are all living in one place and it's live to some extent, let's just call it half living, right? It's like one of those places that says okay like all of the information is right there in one place at one time and there's a higher level of accountability and so i go back to this idea of do you have any metrics that show or that you talk about that that actually put it's it's almost like an roi conversation it's like how beneficial is collaboration and can you put a metric to that when you're explaining the narrative to somebody who is thinking about switching to SnapTrude? So the productivity improvement and accountability, all of those both factors, of course are true, uh, but how much percentage improvement is there? I think uh, the jury's still out. We would have to still wait for it. It's hard to put a number at this stage, so I wouldn't want to speculate about it, whether it's 10% or 80%. And 80% is like really large just for collaboration. Uh, but like, I think definitely 10, 20 or marginal 30% improvement in accountability, removing all these manual errors, like just lack of understanding. Like you had asked me to change this, but I changed something else because I thought of it from my perspective. And again, like two weeks or one week of sync up and you realize that most of the directions have been changed. All of this 
cumulatively it might account to that much percentage. Uh, but like I think we we will understand this over the next six months to a year of how objectively faster it is. But our intention is to make it 100x more productive, as as I was talking about, not just through collaboration, but like bunch of other things surrounding it. Your strategy of working side by side on a project, I think, would start to give you some ideas about the actual numbers of what those turnaround times are like that are enabled by multi-user collaboration, synchronous and asynchronous, right? Because if you're running a time clock, which that's what architects do, right? They build by the hour. That's what matters, right? That is what matters at the end of the day. I think that's probably why there's, like you said early on, there's a huge lack of empathy between the senior leadership and the the junior architects who are using the software, because what really matters at the end of the day is that they were that they got it out on time and on budget, and they didn't go over the number of hours. And architects are there's a whole other discussion about how good they are at actually tracking that that kind of stuff. But those kinds of things, I think, would make a really great case study that would make a lot of eyes open up about what is possible. Because I think that a lot of times we just don't know what's possible as an industry because we haven't seen it before. And if you're co-developing a model alongside and I can see what you're doing and it is major, like you said, what what if it could be a hundred X better? That would be so obvious to me that that would be the way to go that, that I couldn't argue against it, right? It would be so good. I couldn't avoid it anymore. So it seems like that that's a decent strategy for you to understand what those numbers could potentially be or, or could actually be. I know that it's not that easy either, right? Because you're not the architects. You're not the ones making the decisions. You're kind of just like, you're the drafting service on one level of implementing what you're seeing them do in another piece of software and probably trying to come up with better ways to do it, but it's still like, you're not the ones making the decisions. So there's not a great, it's not a totally perfect comparison with, with this co-development idea, but it still seems like a great strategy to try to get there so that you could tell that story. Yeah. So what we do is like, once the model is there at a stage where they want a discussion, we just give it to them. Like they are the owners of the project. So they start collaborating on that project with whoever they want to, their customer, et cetera. And so the productivity gains is realized by them, even though we help them get to that model. But like off late, most of the firms we were working with in doing code, developing these projects has shifted to they using it. Like they've seen that the product is really adding value. So now they themselves are doing their new designs. In fact, they come to us asking, is there anybody who's good at Snapchat that we can just quickly hire right now? Uh, like Snapchat certified architect that, that you're part of the community which we are building. Uh, so uh, like we have made sure that the product is free for students. Uh, we have a freemium version where anybody can sign up and start using it. So because of this, we have a very uh, big community that is emerging up and we are helping them get these projects as well. So there is an architectural firm. They're looking for a great talent. Do you want to go and work with them? So, yeah. Yeah. You know, this whole idea of tools and the work, the entire workflow of the architect and, that includes collaboration. It includes consultants. Something you mentioned earlier about, you know, Revit is that it's great at producing documentation. Where where are you guys in that kind of workflow part? Uh, our focus has been on the design aspect to begin with, largely. Uh, but like we have entered the BIM arena uh, to a significant extent. And construction drawings is something which uh, construction drawings and the entire documentation around it. All of those things are the next set of things which we are tackling. We are not very far away uh, based on uh, the development pace which we have. And uh, we are actually hiring a lot more engineers now. Uh, so anybody who's interested in like disrupting the space, always happy to have them. So next six months to 12 months, I think we'll have uh, a lot more progress on those things. And we'll also enter into uh, the services segments, uh, the MEP, uh, which is, is again a whole huge beast to tackle. But the foundations are there. That's what we focused a lot in the last three and a half, four years now uh, in building. Have really great, solid foundations. Do it. Just put your heads down and build those things. So building buildings on top of those foundations is much easier. I, you know, because of my day job at Tech, I'm interested, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. I don't know if you have uh, this on your roadmap or if it's what, what, how you're thinking about it. And maybe you don't want to say, but I do want to bring it up, which is specifications and content 
because there's so our buildings are made of parts. Our buildings are made of things that companies produce. And a lot of times, I think when we think about software, especially at that early stage outside in, we're not thinking about components at all. We're not thinking about, we might be thinking about some materials. We might be thinking about some assemblies. We're definitely not at the component level. And so I'm just wondering, because specifications are half of the deliverable as it stands right now, and they are, they could be, they have the potential to be linked to the model. Are you guys thinking about that? Like, where are you at in that thought process? Again, you, I don't want to force you to go talk about anything you don't want to talk about. And I know that that is probably longer down the roadmap. But if there's anything there, I think it would be interesting to hear. Yeah. So in terms of a long-term vision, uh, we are actually trying to build a modern operating system for construction. Uh, so it starts with programming what I want to build. So actually delivering those designs on the site to an engineer with the specifications required. And the true promise of BIM, which has been theorized in so many white papers, we actually want to make it happen in the next few years. Uh, what if a site engineer is looking at a BIM model, actually, like hopefully we move out of drawings uh, in the next few years, but like, I think it's 10 years away, but still the drawing, which is on the site, he makes an like a uh, request for more information. Like, I don't understand how this door has to be done. An architect just quickly resolves it back in the office. Somebody approves it. The drawings are instant. Like this is a collaboration which you're seeing is just helping in those meeting in the model is becoming extremely valuable down the road. And that's the journey which we uh, are onto. And I think we, we can actually build that entire operating system. I, I love that idea of the building. You said building model operating system for construction. Is that, that what you said? I, I was trying system. to scribble it down. Yeah. yeah. So if, if you think about it that way, I think that's really interesting. I think one of the, the roadblocks in that current system is risk, right? And what an architect is willing to give to a contractor, because a lot of times there's that's a, a zero trust environment or it's adversarial even. And so um, there becomes these handoff points which cut off what information is used beyond what point. And we see a lot of construction companies building their own models you know, starting from scratch with the drawing. It's insane to, to think about, right? But it, it happens all the time because they're looking for loopholes. They're looking for, and again, this kind of leads back to that whole zero trust adversarial relationship that, that could exist. Um, design build is different. Like there's different delivery methods that, are, that lead to more collaboration, not less, right? So it's not to say that it, it's everywhere, but in the kind of work that I used to do, which was public work with low bid, and, you know, qualified bidders, bidders getting thrown out, low bid, you know, like there's all of these kind of things that create a, a low trust environment. And, and then it becomes, for that operating system to live between design and construction was impossible. So it's not to say that, like, I know you would pick your battles, like you said earlier, and you would go for the ones where it would enable that kind of thing. And I think that's, those are the kinds of things that architects are going to need to see to see how positive it can actually be to want to adopt that kind of a workflow. So it, it is a, it's a very intricate web of, of chaos out there that you're trying to navigate. I really applaud you for, for jumping in and still smiling about it. Like you, you are very excited about this. It hasn't worn you down yet. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm really happy for the, what the work that you're doing and I'm happy to talk about it on the show. You guys have a lot of really interesting ideas. Yeah, some things in life are worth doing. Unfortunately, I feel that very early in my career, I landed on something which is worth dedicating decades of your life uh, in solving. And I think, uh, glad to have been married to this problem of solving this. <laughs> yeah, and potential. Yeah, there's there's pitfalls in marriage too. So <laughs> anyway, uh, Altaf, where can people follow along with what you're doing? And uh, if you, there's any uh, anything else that you want to let the audience know about, now's the time. Yeah, so uh, if you want to just know a little bit more about us, you can go to our website, snaptool.com. If you just want to try it out, you can just like click on the sign up button. You'll get a free access to the software. Uh, and if you want to follow the company, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, we keep updating most of our social media. And for me personally, I'm slightly more active on LinkedIn. Like I, I, I've avoided social media for a long time. Uh, but like Twitter is something which I'm just trying to get more active on. So you can hit me up uh, in any of these places. 
All right. I'll put links to all of those in the show notes for this episode so that people don't have to go searching for them. But Altaf, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thanks for having it with me today. Thank you so much, Ivan. It was such a wonderful conversation. Thank you to Avail for their support of this podcast episode. Visit getavail.com to see their holistic approach to content management today. This show is part of the Gabled Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gabledmedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.